You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. Today I am recording the blurbs for this episode in a premiere inn in King's Langley because I'm in between several things at once and I'm recording this old school like the first couple of years of the podcast. I'm uh, I'm sat in a hotel and I'm looking at uh, a towel that I've draped over a flat screen TV attached to the wall uh, in order to make the sound recording uh, slightly less bad than it is. Yes, we're podcasting like it's 2004. Which, incredibly, is eight years ago and not yesterday, as it might seem for some of you. Now, let's get on to today's guest, the wonderful Bobby Mayer. Um, Bobby is a fantastic comic, very, very excited to have him on the show. That's a Hotel Hoover in the background that I cannot do anything about it. Um, Bobby is like a really, he's got such a wild energy, but he's also really, really sweet. And he's got uh, like some of his stuff is quite kind of scabrous and um, and uh, harsh, I guess, in a way. But it's also like he just has this wonderful quality of being like um, like uh, Oscar the Grouch leaping out of a bin, but with a real sweetness. That's what I think of him. So uh, I hope you're going to love him as much as I love him. And uh, we've got some extras as well, including Bobby on the Killer Camp reality show that he hosted. Um, a bit more exploration of his mental robustness, because he's been through a lot and come up smiling. Um, and we'll also discuss how he went viral as the worst comic in the world. All of that in the Insiders Club at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. This is Bobby Mayer. I lost like half the material. Half the material just felt like after the pandemic, just like, I don't want to say this anymore. So it's kind of a new show with a title. It was supposed to be this show. I was going to like talk about like, I've had a particularly like, I would say hard childhood. And I was going to go through all the things I survived in my life that led up to me doing comedy. Hence cockroach. Hence cockroach. I can survive anything. But then after the pandemic, I was like, I don't want to do that anymore. I, yeah. I, it's just been, it was like such a sad boring two years I'm like the last thing anyone wants is for me to get on stage and be like my life's really hard actually <laughs> nobody cares you can't have been the only person in comedy to go through that because there was pre-pandemic the vogue was here are all my problems yeah I, I mean definitely like I always talk about like what's going like I don't know what what I guess is like unique about me but I just also I just got to put my life where it's like I'm having a kid. I don't want to sit and just like muse about my depressing past. Like it's just bo- it just felt boring. Yeah. So I I threw up most of the show and just wrote a new show just okay. with the the remaining title. And how did that how did that feel to do? Because presumably the stuff you had written was like was it quite hard won stuff? Was it a challenge to write or to kind of to get like a challenge to make painful stuff funny? Were there any challenges or had it been fun and fun to write and the job of writing it, you could just let go of because you'd done it now? Like art- artistically, was it kind of something you had to dredge up so it hurt to let go of? Or were you happy no, to be? No, I was pretty fine with it. I hadn't quite made it funny yet. I was at oh, the point I where see. I was about okay, to yeah, make yeah. it funny and then it was like, okay, well, I don't want to anymore. Who cares? Okay. You know? Yeah. 
And the show is great. I have to say, I should start by saying that. I love the show. It's really funny. And the particular, the uh, you sent me the file from the Manchester. Yeah. You sent the recording from Manchester with the stuff with the police. With the kind of the audience interaction. And I know no one wants to go, hey, I loved your show. That bit with the heckling and the improvisation. I'm not saying it was the best I don't best remember bit. what I said. But I was laughing out loud. You were just bullying this woman, basically, <laughs> in a, bit, well, in a I, really good-natured way. I remember there's a cop, and it's just fun to bully a cop. It's the, sure. only, the only position in your life is when you're on stage and they're in an audience, do you ever get to just be mean to a police officer? Yeah, for sure. But you really, it was fun because, I mean, I don't remember it exactly. It was a few days ago I listened to it, but I was properly laughing out loud in the car at how much you were doubling down on. Like, it felt it felt like a really pure comedy moment, actually. I think that's a good way to look at you as a comic because it, it felt like you just completely committed to the... I mean, if we frame it as you bullying a woman, it's kind of less... <laughs> I think that's that's absolutely not what was happening. Being mean to a cop. Is being mean to a cop. Let's talk two, about being mean to a cop. And there were two cops and they were laughing. Yeah, for sure, for sure. They, and they absolutely loved it. But you really kind of... It felt like you had no... Um, I mean, from a technical point of view, listening, I was like, oh my God, you're so in the moment. It doesn't feel like this is someone using their angle of attack or a familiar kind of structure to go, I will now win this encounter with a heckler kind of thing. You were just purely kind of free-falling and leaning into being really merciless with them in a very funny and imaginative way. And that can be difficult. Like That can bring up problems. Like if you're doing a, an hour and you go off, if, well, not you, if I go off on a tangent like that yeah. and for like a really imaginative loud, especially if it's early in the show, if you do a really loud 10-minute tangent, 10 minutes yeah. in, that kills really hard. Yeah. But then you have to try to go back to material sure. that maybe isn't that high energy. Yeah. Well, you've now ruined <laughs> your show. Like, it's a difficult... So then you have to now match the energy you've just created for an hour. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, it, it, I have fucked myself before. And you're just in, the, in terms of your experience as a comic, how long have you been a comic? And how... Like, just give us the kind of sketch out your life as a comic between Canada and the UK... Okay, so I started comedy when I was 19 years old in in Toronto. Mm-hmm. I always wanted to be a comedian. I watched Whoopi Goldberg when I was like 12. And I then when I knew that comedy was a thing, that's what I wanted to do. Wrote an act when I was 14. Never performed. It was just like an hour of like 14-year-old rants. Um, <laughs> that's a commitment. An hour is a commitment. I was obsessed. I was obsessed with stand More than I am now. I was obsessed with stand-up comedy. And then I moved to Toronto, enrolled in comedy, Humber College's comedy writing and performance program. Okay. Uh, and I just started doing stand-up every night. And I went to class, but I kind of dropped out because it was boring. But I just obsessively did stand-up every night for five years for free. Okay. Got a bit of success. I, then I won this competition where I won $10,000. Holy shit. And then I moved here. Okay. I mean, I was already moving here, but I wanted... Right, right, it, right. Okay, it, it wasn't it like really the helped. money gave you the escape velocity. That Presumably, no. the people uh, who run the competition didn't intend for you to immediately leave the country. No. <laughs> but I will say, when I moved here, I did tell a white lie and say, uh, oh, yeah, I, I just won 10 grand and on a whim decide to move here because it's a better story. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so people are like, oh, we... So how old were you then when you moved? 25, 26. So you came here as, as kind of like an unpaid, like a non-professional comic with a prize purse. I was a professional comic. I was working some clubs. So I was working okay. some clubs in Canada, like just kind of starting. I was middling and kind of at the point where I would headline once in a while or just starting to headline. And then I was like, okay, I'm leaving. Because like lots of, there's so many great comics in Canada, but 
there's a very low ceiling for success. There's not that much to do. So not much to do in terms of like, what, how do you mean not much to do? like, like paucity of gigs or uh, the, the gigs are all very far apart mm-hmm. because Canada, you know, has half as many people as England and they're spread out over the size of Russia. Mm-hmm. So when you travel for gigs, you're losing a lot of your money just in the traveling. So it's not that financially viable to be a touring comic. You can do it if you're, if you can do corporates and stuff, but I can't do even do corporates really. Mm-hmm. So that it just, the guys who are like me, who are a lot older than me, who were really good, just weren't making that much money and weren't known. So I was like, well, this, I can see my future. Okay. And I don't want this to be it. And uh, I went to Edmonton. I went to Edmonton, which is a city in Western Canada to do a fringe festival. Yeah. For a month. And I just spent a month in Western Canada, which is like the Alabama of Canada. And after a month there, I was like, I'm going to move to England. Because I just, for my life to be, for, to be a Canadian comedian, my life would be half of the time out there, you know, touring the West Coast of the country. Because there's more money out there sometimes, I think. I think I say that like, I, I think there is. I, I never really did it. And I was like, this can't be my life. This can't be it. So then I just so why left. why the UK and not America? I, at that time, I had no TV credit, so I couldn't get a visa to move to America. I had no oh, shit. Okay, so, I would. I don't know how the system works. I would have assumed as a Canadian you can wander in. No, not at all. No, I I don't. Uh, you need. To, I think it's an O one is the visa that most comedians would go on and go in on, and you need kind of to have a career. Yeah, I just sure. De- deal memos and contracts and all the rest of it. Yeah. yeah. So this was the uh, the option and it was so easy to come here because i was still under 30 so i could get a youth mobility visa which was just a traveling visa for two years okay yeah so what did the what did the uh territory of comedy look like in the uk when you arrived it was i mean from my perspective it was amazing because in canada there's lots of gigs in canada and lots of like fun gigs but a lot of the time i'd be going on at like open mics with like literally four people in the audience and i did that for years so i came here and a bad gig here was like there's still 50 people there and you're getting paid 30 pounds and i'm like okay this is great (laughs) do you think just on that do you think that um newer comics in the uk are kind of spoiled because they don't realize how easy they have it um i don't necessarily know if they're spoiled like i I wouldn't put that judgment on them i would say they they don't (laughs) It seems like they do get things happen quite quickly here for people in a way that I've never seen anywhere. You know what I mean? Like after like five years, people are like on television and like quite yeah. famous. And it's yeah, like, yeah. I would say it's a bit sad sometimes because you'll see a comic and they'll be really good. And then they'll get a bunch of stuff and you're like, oh, if you would have just had another five years of making no money and no one knowing who you are, you would probably be really funny. But like you're you're just going to get all these jobs and... It's gone and now. the difference there being that the idea of being really funny as a kind of as like a purist in comedy yes. as a kind of as a fellow act I'm you talking know. about just like the craft of stand-up comedy not yeah. that not that people aren't great at what they do like oh what they'll be good at making like a, a, a television show and that's great but like the craft of stand-up maybe I would say sometimes gets lost a bit here because people the, although at the same time then Edinburgh exists and the craft of stand-up is stronger there than anywhere else so I don't know like okay yeah. and and who was around when you like who were you gigging with you presumably you came straight into doing open mics and kind of yeah. mirth gigs and stuff like that in the UK yeah just clubs and gigs I I who did I meet I mean in terms of people that 
people know. I mean, I was gigging with like Ramesh all the time. Okay. And like, I'd see Catherine Ryan sometimes. And, but I think she was already kind of on her way up. And um, in terms of, and people, People that only people in comedy would know. Who are your kind of contemporaries? Do you, were, were you doing like the, um, were you doing the new act competitions over here? I did some new act competitions, which felt disingenuous as I've been in comedy for like seven years. You, to be fair, looking back at who did the new act competitions when a lot of people had already been going for a while. Yeah. Well, but I was in. A- I'm, I'm not going to judge anybody for like I've just been. I'd hosted one where someone had won a new act thing, and then at the time was telling me about their extensive experience in a different continent. I was like, I'm not going to judge you. This is how it works now, you know. I. I- well, my now wife, Harriet Kemsley, who's also a comedian, she, we were in the Laughing Horse finals in like 2012 together. Oh, shit. Okay. And I won. But I beat a bunch of comedians who've been going for like a year. Yeah. So yeah, it's like, yeah, well, yeah. of course I won. Yeah, but okay. I, I, one of my friends named Nick Beaton, who had been going longer than me, was in it also. <laughs> <laughs> and Nick's a great comedian. He moved back to Canada, I think, because he didn't like living here, but... He, um, he, we just split the money. I mean, we kind of said, like, whoever wins, let's just split the money. Oh, who brought that up? Whose idea was that? Mine. Good for you. I tried to do that in a street performing competition in 2001 because I was in a double act. I don't know if I've told this story in the podcast before. And it was like, everyone was being exploited, but the winner gets two grand. And so I, me and my buddy Noel said to all of the people backstage, let's just agree to split the money. And they said, no, no, no. No, I'm not going to do it. And then we won. <laughs> we skipped town in a taxi. Yeah, great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what was the question? Who did I um, hang out with? Yeah, kind of who were you hanging out with? I just want to sort of build a picture of what, what, I kind of what, like, what was the atmosphere like on the comedy circuit okay, when, when well, you were when starting I moved, in the UK? It was, I was just like, Top Secret Comedy Club in London was just starting, so I'd go there all the time. Okay. And like, it was amazing. Like for... Uh, n- now every comedian in the country wants to play top secret yeah i mean you know mark really well yeah yeah yeah. but i'd call mark and literally he'd be like you want some gigs and he'd give me 30 gigs (laughs) (laughs) it was amazing it's really interesting to me the amount of um uh, kind of flux and change in a certain group of comedians careers that is down to the fact that mark didn't know anything about stand-up comedy It was great. And I just get booked there all the time. So I was there all the time. Yeah, okay. And the crowds were amazing. It was already full by that time. And in yeah. this like dank basement of the Africa Center, we had some great times there. I remember being like, we were like smoking pot in a cave that was kind of behind the club. <laughs> and uh, one of the audience members was there. And then we were all quite high. And then uh, the guy was like, hey, everyone, I have a confession. And he pulled out a badge and he was like, I'm a cop. And he was a cop. <laughs> and we were just getting high with this cop. But it was, I don't know, he didn't seem to take his job that seriously. <laughs> so what kind of a comic, what do you think, here's the question, what do you think moving to the UK and the circuit in the UK, what changes did you undergo as a comic because of that move? I, either ones to do with frequency of gigs or the type of audience members or or just what was happening in your life at the time? I was, uh, so in Canada, I was like doing gigs every day. I would always push myself and do like whatever shitty gig I could do. Like I was so desperate just to be on stage and I moved here and kind of that attitude came with me. Like I just, I always, I literally thought if I don't do comedy for a day, I'll forget how to do it. (laughs) Like I didn't think 
that you could ha- not do it for a few days. I just thought, like, if I don't do it, I'll get worse at it because I won't be good. So I would just do it so obsessively. And uh, I st- here, I would meet people who kind of only did good gigs. Yeah. And I would be like, oh, what are you doing? And now I look back and I'm like, I wish I did that. Like, yeah. I spent so many years just doing everything. Grinding away, doing shitty gigs and assuming that there was some kind of inherent nobility or like that was a, or not maybe nobility, but like you've got to pay your dues. Well, maybe you do, but only for a certain amount of time. Yeah, just not realizing that there's another way. Yeah. Not realizing that if I didn't do comedy for one day, I wouldn't lose it. Yeah. But I still like, I don't know, I love I loved that time in my life. And I still do stand up a lot now. Yeah. I just could not do it for two days and not worry it's going to be gone. <laughs> and do you think there is there a, like, obviously the upside to doing stand up nearly every day is you're constantly match fit and generating the machines always running the creativity's always kind of turning over is there a downside to it at all or is it just like this is your sport and you play it every day and that's uh, great. the downside maybe is if not enough reflection or i the downside could be not enough reflection or knowing what as long as i i mean it was there's that malcolm gladwell book about mastering things mm. and they talk about like intentional practice and I always think that's so important. Like if you did like a hundred sets, but in all of them, you weren't working on anything and you just said the material the same way every time, those hundred sets are kind of pointless. Mm-hmm. But if every time you're intentionally working on so a small improvement in each set, well, then you're going to be a lot better at the end of the hundred sets. And that's kind of like when, I'm at, when I've been at my best, that's what I'm doing. Always intentional practice, always trying to improve, whether it's like, just like, because a lot of people think like a new joke, but it's also like connection. Like I did two shows a couple weeks ago. And on the first show, I just, I kind of checked out mentally of the gig and just said the material to the audience without really looking at them and probably did 40 minutes of material in 20 minutes. And they laughed enough that it looked like a fine gig, but I was in no way connected to the audience because I wasn't like looking at them. I just didn't, there was no connection. The second gig, I just made an extra effort to connect and I probably did 12 minutes of material in 20 minutes instead of 40. Mm-hmm. And they laughed so much harder. And there's no way to like explain that to someone that's not a comedian. They Neither audience knew the difference. Yeah. They don't know. They don't get the trick. The trick of like make like just letting them think you're their friend. I don't know. Go on. Go on. Like looking at them. Like looking at them smiling, laughing a lot, like having an intentionally good time while you deliver your material as opposed to just like saying the material yeah, is such a stark difference in audience reaction. Yeah. But they would never know that they're laughing because you're laughing or that they're laughing because you're looking at them with warm eyes or that they're laughing because of how quickly you're speaking they just think you're funny yeah they think yeah. the words are funny but the words are like i don't know 40 percent, maybe i'm really i'm really fascinated by that I, I feel like you've just given us the kind of the the headlines on how to connect to an audience so just to stay with that for a second because i'm you're clearly very intentional as a comic and i also want to talk to you about the kind of the um but i think i also appear very unintentional well this exactly it i i I want to talk to you about the kind of the persona the bobby mayor persona and the relationship between that and the kind of reflective intentional kind of astute sure person that you are but um 
just in terms of that finding the connection or, or finding i mean is is that the same as performing well does performing well for stand-up does it just mean is, is that like another way of saying connect with them i guess so but i don't i don't know what performing well means like i guess it's just how i would the words i would use yeah, yeah. so what do you when you find yourself not performing well, can you gear change and turn it back on in the middle of a show? Can you realise you're, you're faking it and reconnect? I can now, but I definitely, that's only in the last few years. Before that, it would be like, if it's not going, I, I didn't have the quite as much awareness mm. in the past, I think, as to why it was working. I'd know what I had to do to get it to work, which was like intensely rehearse my set. At the time, it was like intensely rehearse my set list. And that was just because if I knew my set list really well, I'd be in the moment, not in my head, thinking about what I'm going to say next. And if my if I'm in my head a bit thinking, what am I going to say next? A bit of doubt creeps in. Once doubt creeps in, I slow down, I stutter a bit, and then the magic is done. Yeah. I'm just never going to be as funny as when I'm really confident. And do you think part of your uh, comedy is appearing that it's accidental? Not in... I... I I don't have quite that much self-reflection, not intentionally. I don't know. Okay. Does it, do you think Well, that? not that it's accidental, but I think that your persona is, like, it's a really rich persona. And it's there's a word I'm using more and more often on the podcast. I, th- I hope on, only when it's uh, appropriate. But it seems kind of archetypal. Like, I've watched some, some TV spots of yours on YouTube from, like, nine years ago, mm. where you are kind of young Bobby, obviously. And you're, like, you're you like you don't have a beard and you look disheveled but differently yeah you still look disheveled but just in a different kind of way in a more youthful kind of way and you had that joke um about um uh looking like the sort of person who would if you wronged me i'd write down your name and three weeks later i'd murder you or i'd send you pictures of your kids yeah yeah, but taken from inside your house that kind of bit so that idea of you as a kind of almost like a school shooter archetype like i'm a i'm all over the place I'm a fuck up of some kind mm. and uh, I'm very intense and I'm kind of, you know, staring at, staring at people on buses or sniffing people's hair on buses. That kind of like that, that, that quality. I think um, although that quality has matured it, and that kind of that image of you has matured as you are now in your late, late 30s, mid 30s, 36, 36. Um, so I think that that is like there's still a flavor of that on stage when i listen to that that tour show that you taped in manchester there is definitely a sort of a wildness and a spontaneity and a like you know like a like a kind of sort of like a truth telling weirdo kind of character do you know what i mean yes yeah i mean I know <laughs> you you were just looking at me very analytically then and i thought like oh god have i said the wrong thing no 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 i know exactly <laughs> what you mean i but uh i would say i'm never like I've never intentionally manufactured a stage persona. I understand that. So I'm not I, accusing you of doing No, so. no. But that, <laughs> but that wouldn't be... I wouldn't take that as a slight if you had. If you, Lots of people do. Lots of people... What I would... Like, I, I've tried. I love observational comedy. This is like... I love observational comedy. I want to be Jerry Seinfeld. You know how great it would be to just walk around and notice things, write them down, and get to say the things you notice? That's great. I love Larry David. He's my favorite kind of comedic performer of all time. When I try to do observational comedy, no one laughs. I stumbled upon the way my act is and people laughed more and more. So I'm like, well, I guess I'm just going to keep doing this. You know, <laughs> there's no, there's no, that's it. You just figure out your how you make people laugh. I would yeah. say very rarely, you have to be quite a master 
that on a level I don't think I would necessarily get to. Like, you have to be like George Carlin level or to be able to intentionally change your style of comedy. Yes. Okay. So it's a process of discovering the best, the most... What, like the most efficient way of making them laugh? Like if you, if we take an example of a Seinfeld type observation that you make and like you make the observation in the sense of you notice something and write it down, you then take that on stage or have done at some point and realise that like what is it that's getting in the way of the They just don't buy that? it from me. I don't know the why of it. I say it and they're like, nah, not from you. Can, can go, you think of an example? Can you think of an example from a million years ago? I can't. I, well, they were all jokes that didn't work. So you kind of forget them. Sure, sure, I can't. Sure. I sorry. I can't. I can't no. think of anything. But like just, just those like banal observations with no personality. Not banal, but like observations. Clean, without, kind of clean, pure, pure observations. Sake. Yeah, yeah. Just no one would laugh when I say them. But I mean, but then the things I would write easily would always just. I actually have a bit in the new show, my first observational bit that I've made work after 16 years. Okay, go on. Which, which bit? The bit roughly? about, it's just a, a bit about uh, the uh, how terrible the roads are in this country and how they're all like one-laned narrow roads. <laughs> yeah, 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 gotcha. Horse roads. Yeah, yeah, horse roads. They're horse roads. Yeah, okay. So you've been trying to make that bit work for 16 years. No, I've been trying to write an observational oh, I bit see, for I 16 see, I see. years. Gotcha. And that was my first kind of successful, like just purely observational where oh. my, maybe my personality is selling it, but I feel like it's the my first successful, like, oh, I'm good enough now that I know how to just comment on things. And what distinguishes that observation from the rest of the content of the show, which is arguably observational? I would say my own experience being in it. I, I would say a lot of the other my other material it's like I'm the driving force of that material. Okay. My my I, m- usually my material is like I did something something happened to me that I've done wrong. Yeah. Whereas observational comedy is you've done something wrong. Yes. And is therefore so is that is that I was never good at the joke not being on me. Yeah. 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 And is that is that a preference is it like a sort of a an of interest to you because it's a, a an additional skill that you feel you're getting your teeth into at last or is it like oh i want to do more of those things would you be would you be trying like next hour to write as many of those as possible I don't are they, know. Are they I, it's just a relief better? in the sense that i don't feel like something awful has to happen to me for me to write a joke yeah yeah right because that's a bit exhausting well, the, 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 yeah so if you two... mine your trauma after a while you're just like oh god you yeah, know. yeah, and uh, the other thing that I would suggest is that it's like you mentioned there, relatability. Yeah, like you're not trying to win them over to your point of view, but you're I, say you're kind of uh, articulating a point of view they already have, they just didn't know. Yeah, like I used to, like just in terms of the, I would say the um, the the pain of just really mining your pain, and I, is like I used to have a joke where I'm like, oh, I'm adopted, I've never met my biological mother. Uh, that makes it hard to enjoy a lap dance, which was like, sure. everyone loved that joke. Okay. Yeah. And then a while ago, someone was like, why don't you do that joke? Just do it. And I was like, yeah, I found my biological mother and she's dead. So I don't want to say the joke anymore. It's just like, ugh. And it's okay. just nice to not have, but at the same time, no risk, no reward. You know, you have to, if you want people to really love you, you have to give them a lot of yourself. Whatever yeah. that means for you. So I'm not saying I don't want to give like everything that I can to my, to what comedy but it's just nice to be able to have a bit where you don't have to 
Yeah, I'm interested in that because I I struggle with that sometimes. The idea that, like, I really see it that there are people who look at. I mean, I always think of someone like Fern Brady, who just really gives to you of herself. She seems very comfortable in who she is and has a kind of a vehicle for saying the shit she thinks. Honestly, yes. she, I I don't imagine that she ever needs to kind of check herself and say do I really mean that or I shouldn't say that or something like that. Okay. Um, just to pick one example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel a bit more inhibited. I feel very inhibited compared to Fern. Jesus. I feel like, oh God, I can't really say what I think about my family because they are alive and it'll get back to them. And I love them. But what if I do, you know, what if I make a mistake? You know, I'm like right at the other end of the spectrum and feeling inhibited about that stuff. Whilst understanding that exactly as you say, there is this kind of risk reward thing. So... So where do you kind of stand on that? Do you, you like, that's your biological mother aside, that specific yeah, example Yeah, yeah, I just aside. gave that example because I felt yeah. like it was an honest example. Yeah, of like, for sure. But also, as you get old, you know, some people, I, I just want to give, I want to give as much as I can. That And, you know, but there's things I still wouldn't give, like yeah. anything about my wife's family. Yeah. They're really, you know, they're nice private people. They don't want, they don't want their lives. So this is Bobby, a joy to talk to Bobby, uh, really such a lovely guy. And very impressively, he has a podcast studio in his house. And I'm pretty upset about that because that's the sort of thing I want. He's very cleverly uh, invested time and I'm sure money in putting together a kind of permanent recording space in his house. Like all of those guys, I imagine uh, a lot of American comics are doing and North American comics are, are doing now, recognising that this is the way of the future. And if you didn't build yourself a, a broadcast studio of some sort over the pandemic, what the hell were you doing? Um, so thank you to Bobby uh, for having me. And uh, we will talk more to Bobby in just a second. Um, remember, comedianscomedian.com slash insiders for some extra stuff from Bobby, including his experiences going viral as the worst comic in the world. Uh, basically, I think someone from memory, someone recorded a short clip of him bombing and then posted it online. And then I think this is sort of ongoing. This is it's fairly recent. Um, and so... He's managed to do what I would consider a classic Goldsmith move. If I came on here and told you, oh, I've gone viral as a clip of me doing terribly badly at a gig. Um, that's the sort of thing I think most of you would think, yeah, sort of stuff that happens to Stu. So what a joy it is to hear about it happening to someone else. So um, uh, Bobby's tour, Cockroach, is continuing. It's a fantastic tour show. Um, Red Richardson often doing support. I'm not sure on every single one. Um, but the tour show continues in Southend, Cardiff and Norwich and concludes in London in July. You can get all your tickets at bobbymayor.net. Follow him on Twitter at bobbymayor or on Instagram at bobbymayorcomedian. And you can also find Bobby and Red's podcast, The Year Is, which is really funny listen it's two guys in a room chatting shit but they do it very very well so uh, i think there's always more room in a crowded genre for people who are taking it forwards shall we say so it's very very funny they they uh, they spark off each other in a very very funny way so um that is just on the subject of instagram tiny bit of plugging here old papa Podface has gone viral himself, and um, I and I I had to change my official podcast account from at ComComPod, which uh, I, I'll get into reasons in the post amble, but I've had to change it to at Stuart Goldsmith Comedy. So if you're following me already on Instagram, it should have magically changed without you knowing. But um, now you can follow the podcast at ComComPod on Twitter, but on Instagram at Stuart Goldsmith Comedy, and I'm putting reels up there and having a wonderful time doing it. And they're all, I mean, one of them's got nearly like is it 4.3 million or something he said 
pretending not to have uh, checked it compulsively 10 seconds ago. So um, I've also there's also an account by that name on the spyware site TikTok. So uh, if you feel like you're uh, uh, robust enough in your data protection processes, then feel free to uh, go to the spyware site TikTok to watch my uh, to be distracted by my comedy stylings uh, as all of your contacts are removed from your phone or whatever it is spyware does. I can't claim to understand it. That's why it works so well. So uh, let's get back to the fabulous Bobby May. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Do you Have you gone too far in the past with kind of disemboweling yourself and going, oh, look at this, I've fucked up like this, I'm a fuck up. That, no, those I don't think so. I've never felt, I've never regretted anything that I've said. Like, well, I'm sorry, I've regretted individual things I've said, uh, but I've never really regretted kind of the personal information I've given out on stage. Because I, I do think that idea of what comedy costs you, and as you said, you know, like if you what is you said if you want them to really get on board if you want them to love you then you have to give something of yourself yeah you have to give everything you have i think like you're like the idea that like you are more special than these 200 people or or however many people in a room and like they're gonna listen to you for 30 minutes well you better like give them something yeah you know, you... yeah, but then there are th- there are different things to give them. What you might give them might be some beautifully written one-liners about nothing. Sure, but that's that they're never going to have those thoughts. That's still something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah but what I mean is, like, is if you are a like, what's the what's the relationship between risk and reward between giving them something if you are a comic that isn't the style of comic that talks about your own life in detail? You know, I don't know. That's not me. I can't. I can't. But what, but what do you think when you see an act like that? Do you? I'm just. I'm just asking you to imagine within that, within the terms in which we're talking, someone who doesn't, inv- maybe like a topical comic or a satirist or something sure, like that. Sure. Do you think there is still a kind of element of cost involved or risk reward involved? Oh, I mean, in terms of a political comedian or anyone who's talking about issues, yeah. Once you dive into that world. Well, then you have to live and die by your opinions forever. That's horrible. Yeah, that's I mean, it a way sounds, worse life. It sounds so horrible Once to me. You're like what I think about trans over, yeah, you right. know, not the. I just you once you enter the arena of opinions as your job. Yeah, like like, and that's what you do. That seems like a horrible life. And I, I see people I know, yeah, on both sides of the political spectrum, 
And, you know, they've now made that their thing. That's all they're doing. There's no more them. It's just what they think about things. And it looks exhausting. Yeah. You see them and they just look tired because they've been fighting on Twitter with like 18 year olds. And you're like, what are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. Is that, do you think? So I think it, yeah, definitely that, I mean, giving yourself is nothing compared to once you start telling everyone how to live their lives. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. That's true. But also I'm just interested in that because I think you are very giving of yourself on stage and you are like, that is one of the elements. It's thrilling to watch you because you just, it feels very spontaneous and very volatile, like the performance of it. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Not just the performance of it, but like but, you're, you're kind of wild. But a lot of it's unintentional. A lot of the pauses are me just, I forgot what I was going to say next. Yeah. So then it's like, oh, he's just staring at us. It's like, yeah, I'm sitting here thinking, what am I going to say next? So you're yeah. styling. <laughs> I'm literally just styling out my terrible memory. Yeah, I find myself doing that a lot. I'm a lot less... I doing gigs in, on Zoom during the pandemic and realizing with, if I can have bullet points in my eyeline, I'm a completely mm. different comedian. Yeah. And just wondering, like, how much on that, how much of your comedy is... So, like, technically, there's a thing where you might stare at them because you've forgotten your place. Uh, you've, you've, forgotten, <laughs> you've forgotten your place in society. No, no, I know what you, you, mean. Know, you mean. But um, uh, what other things are there like that whereby the way that you are as a comic, the flavor of comic you are is driven by challenges you're undergoing, like performatively or in your life? I mean, I would say before I started comedy, I had a year between the ages of 17 and 18 where uh, my best friend died in a car accident. Then my another friend... Two other friends died in a car accident. My mom got diagnosed with cancer. Then one of my other best friends died of cancer. Then my mom died. Then my uncle died. Then my grandma died. Within a year and a half. And then my other Jesus uncle died. Christ. And then I started doing comedy. Oh my God, Bobby. But that was so like my whole like... Kind of my whole attitude. Like, like, uh, like just this like pain that I kind of brought to stage. And then kind of... I guess became what I'm doing that all happened. And then I just started doing stand up. So, and I never like, there was no like processing that it was just like, Ooh, that's a lot. That was uh, like a family apocalypse. That was crazy. Yeah. And then I just did stand up. So I, I, what do you say? Like, what am I bringing to it? I guess, I guess I can pinpoint that like, well, that was, that's crazy that that happened. And then I just started doing comedy. And my what, mom did die after once I was doing comedy a couple months in, but yeah. Okay. And what did that? Um, I mean, something you mentioned in the in the show that I don't know if I knew about you was you have borderline personality disorder. Yes, yes. So that's about emotional dysregulation. Yes. I mean, it, I wouldn't if if I was tested for it today, I wouldn't be told I have it. Okay. But at my worst, a few years ago, I definitely had borderline personality disorder, and I was like, it had no control over my emotions or just how what it, like. And was that was a lifelong to. thing? Do you think there's was that was that kind of forged in the crucible of that family apocalypse? No, that was before. Before I was adopted, so it's, it's when you're adopted, you're like, you know, you're just raised by a different family, and that I think has brings its own issues. Not even blaming the family, really. That just, uh, but then also just I just grew up around like my adopted family. I don't know how they adopted a kid. Okay. So they were just very intense, loud, angry people. Okay. 
So I just grew up around crazy people. And I don't know. And some of it's biology. Who knows? You know, it's hard to tell. But but anyway, yeah. Is that an answer? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. know. I'm not quite it's sure what the question is. It's, it's more, I was supposed, I was thinking that that experience, the family apocalypse experience, to happen to anyone, even if they were able to regulate their emotions in no, the usual I definitely, way, I was would still be the, super hard. The same way before that. I I definitely, um, yeah, I was already very like emotional, like emotionally unstable as a teenager, and then that okay. happened. Okay. What kind of and um, what kind of instability compared to the average teenager? But, well, at the time, it probably would have just looked like an average teenager. Yeah. Okay. But then, as everyone else grew out of it, I didn't. <laughs> right. Okay. So that's the you know you can. Okay. It's like when you're you know when you're in your early thirties and people just slow down and stop getting drunk every day, and then there's someone who doesn't. And you're like, oh, yeah. Maybe that guy's had a problem the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you kind of feel guilty because you're like, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Is there like that? Did comedy, did start, I mean, that? do you think it's a coincidence that that apocalyptic time happened and then you started doing stand-up? Well, I was always going to do stand-up even before that. I loved okay. stand-up. So it is a coincidence. So it is a coincidence. It is just a coincidence. <laughs> it's not like a, yeah, completely. Because it sounds like one of those, I got divorced, I crashed my no, car and I thought, no. fuck, I'm doing stand-up. It's not like that at all. No, it was just a coincidence. But it was a, it was a, um, it was a coincidence. It, it's still like, I think dictated my probably mood on stage and it dictated kind of maybe how I act a bit. And, yeah. But and, I don't know. It's hard to pinpoint. And presumably like one of the elements of your persona, I guess, is, is you, um, how can I put this? You don't, you like that kind of part of the wildness of it is a sort of an alternativeness, like a kind of a, a lack of recognition for society's rules. It's not like Seinfeld going, I put stuff in the crisper. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's like... Well, it's really, it's, I think I do, it's, I, I think on a base level, it's just me being a kid who's like, I can do whatever I want. No one can get me in trouble. You know what I mean? Like, it's yeah, just okay. like, I, I have always had like an anti-authoritarian streak in me that like, as I get older is a bit more pathetic where you're like, <laughs> why do I have to show you my train ticket? You yeah, know what yeah. I mean? Like, it's like, there's nowhere for it. Once you're the adult, there's nowhere for it anymore. Yes. So, so it, you, what was that like as a kid? What, how did that manifest as a kid? The other I just got suspended all the time from school. Okay. And I just wanted to do what I wanted to do and not sit there and listen to boring teachers talk. Okay. And so I would just talk a lot in class and be loud and want attention. Mm -hmm. How did how did the fact of you being adopted impact on your life? Like, did you always know from when you were? I was. It was, I was, it was a birth, was it? Mm -hmm. yeah. A birth. Yeah, I always knew I was adopted. I don't. I think um, it's very. It's hard to answer that question because I don't have a another life where sure. I wasn't adopted. A, a control life. Yeah, you don't have yeah. a control, so yeah. it's hard to tell. How I would imagine it influenced me on a biological level is I think there's a thing where like when someone is uh, raised by their mother, they feel like uh, a certain connection that kind of grounds them and maybe makes them feel safe. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I necessarily had that, but then I'll meet other adopted people and they don't have this. So I don't, sure. it's very hard to quantify exactly sure. why you are what you are, but I would being adopted for me probably made me just constantly feel like a bit of an outsider yeah. And a bit unwanted, even though yeah. I intellectually know that's not true. Sure. Sure. I that think. Outside, I think that word outsider is kind of what I was reaching for before. Yeah. That your, you know, your position on stage 
is that of an outsider. Yes, yes. And if your feeling in life is that of an outsider and you're... Sure. Like, are there... Did you, when you came to comedy, did you feel like an outsider within comedy or did you feel like, oh, now I connect with these people? In a oh, but depending on the day, both. Yeah. But I definitely found where I fit, you know? I This is the world I fit in and I really like it here. But I definitely... I, I still had moments... There's always moments of just imposter syndrome, which is such a, like an overblown phrase now that it mm-hmm. feels like... Like armchair psychologist. I used to be such a good armchair psychologist and it's just been taken away from me by everyone else now getting involved. <laughs> okay, what in what in what way? I understand everyone else has got involved, but what was good about your previous uh, armchair psychologist? I just really and liked... for the benefit of the listener, we are both currently sat in our armchairs. Yeah, I just really like to know... Uh, uh, I think this is what's wrong with that guy. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, I see what you mean. Okay. And then now everybody's doing it. Yeah, I mean... You, lots of labels. You allude to that fact. Well, you say outright uh, in the show without wanting to give stuff away, but like one of the, the sections of the show towards the end is about um, your BPD and asking people in the audience how, you know, their mental illness and uh, and kind of decrying the fact that nowadays everyone has got one. Uh, well, I've... And I, I want to say this from the most empathetic point. Like, of course, it's great when people realize what's wrong. Mm-hmm. There has to be a limit at some point. Like, there has to be a limit where it's like we can't all be in the same club. But I don't mean, I don't know. It's good that people get awareness. I just think people l- wear their labels quite heavily. Mm-hmm. If that, they're like, this is who I am. This is who I am. And it's like, okay. And some people need that. But like, I also used to think like... uh I, but I, I'm more just, look, anything I'm yelling at other people about is actually just what I hate about myself, you know? So if I speak about myself for years or for like, I, I quit drinking at one point because I was like, I'm an alcoholic. And I, I mean, I don't drink now, but when I quit drinking and quit doing drugs, my life didn't even really get better. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody ever tells you, nobody ever tells you like, listen, you drink and do drugs for a very good reason. Don't just stop. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, but um, <laughs> let's just unpack that for a second. No one ever tells you you drink and do drugs for a very good reason. Don't yeah. just stop. Yeah, to you? regulate your emotions. Yes, so gotcha. just, like nobody told me that. Nobody, you know, they're just like, you drink too much, you stop. So I stop. And then I'm like, oh, seems like I'm having a mental breakdown now. And the, the drugs and the alcohol were actually what was keeping me afloat. <laughs> okay. I, I, but yeah, I, I think I've always felt like enough of a part of the club. Yeah. And then sometimes definitely in this country um i mean people always talk about people being privately educated and there's that that part of the club you know where everyone's like oh this privately educated and i'm like <laughs> yeah but i mean like i went to a i went to a shitty school there was just a school in canada there's no privately there's no private education okay there's just i just went to school yeah with everyone else most of the kids in my class were still fucking idiots do you know what I mean? The idea that like someone's like, I went to a state school and he went to a private school. It's like, yeah, well, I feel like maybe that gives you an extra 20%. Yeah. But like, I know, I've met lots of privately educated people that still like are stupid. I don't know. <laughs> like it doesn't mean it's not going to make you good at comedy. Yes. Yes. So. I, oh, I've but missed. I get, of course, the, you know, they get to run everything. Sure. But I get. Well, and there is, a, I mean, part of the, the biggest part of it is the 
the biggest privilege is the entitlement. And if there is a positive word for entitlement, the fact that... Confidence. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah, no, it's great. Jesus I wish Christ. I had it. It's amazing. Yeah. I have it I have it in comedy on stage, but not in life. It's, it would be amazing. And I, I totally don't mean to say that, like, obviously the system's not rigged against us. It is. <laughs> But I do find in comedy now, I've heard the privately educated thing a lot. And it's like, like, I completely agree. But then also, I don't know. You just get sick of complaining. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, it's it's like a lot of comedy is a lot of people complaining right now about their place in life, which is fair. That's fine. Do you think as a, a Canadian living permanently in the UK... Does does the fact that you are an outsider in that respect help you to see the world differently? No, I don't think it necessarily makes... Or like, is there... Do you feel that you have, um, like, the, the sort of the, the natural interestingness of the fact that you're not from here and you sound different? Like, does that, does that give you a sort of... Um, I don't know. I suppose I'm kind of asking two things. I, One get, what is... you, I get what you're saying, that I, but I don't know why people respond to me well or why I get work, you know? I get, sure. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe that's why. But it, it went well in, like, I was funny in Canada too. You know, no, no, it, no, sure, I didn't sure, get sure. Any, I didn't get any funnier just because I'm not from here, I guess, like in terms of the audience yeah. reacting to me. Yeah. I There's no, like, I don't, I it, it's not funnier here. It's it's actually funnier there because North American audiences laugh so much harder. Okay, I don't know if that's been talked about on this podcast, but it's crazy. You'll if you ever go there, you'll feel like the funniest person in the world because you'll kill so hard. <laughs> like they're <laughs> laughing while you're doing the setup to the next joke. It's okay. amazing. Okay. And then here, uh, something about how you've been, I don't know, culturally suppressed for thousands of years. It's just people are just the haha, and I'm used to it now. But yeah, okay. My experience of uh, Canadian comics coming over here is often that, or like my my sort of my educated assumption about the majority of uh, Canadian comics in the UK is that because the gigs are further away, the broad trend is that people work harder because the stage time you have to go through more to get the stage time. So people work harder off stage, write harder, and are they kind of bite down on the gig a lot more like Canadian comics tend in my experience in the UK to be really good at dealing with hecklers because if they've spent any time gigging in Canada if someone heckles you can't you've just driven you know 12 hours to get somewhere or flown to get somewhere you can't let go of the gig whereas the equivalent in the UK is like oh, there'll be another gig tomorrow and it's only an hour away yeah that, I'd say that's probably true and well in Canada to get a, a 20 minute spot at a comedy club is very hard there's a lot of like hoops at least when i was there i don't know how it is now when i was there it's very for me you know for yeah it was really hard so you're trying to hone every line of your act all the time whereas here i yeah i think it's just a bit easier here there's just more gigs there's more opportunities yeah do you feel that you have had um the appropriate opportunities for your ability yeah it's going it's been a great ride that's so great to hear. <laughs> yeah, I've had a great time. Um, I've done lots of stand-up. I've been on a bunch of television shows I had never heard of ever that were institutions in this country. <laughs> I've hosted a reality show. I had a sitcom. 
That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I didn't plan any of that. Great. I do, do I wish, like, more people knew who I was? Sure. But I've had all the chances for that to happen. And I still think it will. I think I'll do fine. But, but yeah, I think I think so. Are there elements... Well, the re- part of why I ask is people on this podcast are forever saying, I feel like the Invisible Man of Comedy. Or, do you know what I mean? People oh, I feel do. overlooked and I that kind of thing. I do feel that way. But I, I guess I'm self-aware enough to know that even if I had a million dollars, I'd still feel that way. It's perception. The reason I'm a... Th- those... <laughs> Again, armchair psychology. Those people would feel that way no matter where they were or what they were doing. And that's why they're comedians. It's nothing to do with the reality of their lives that they self... Like, yeah, that's what you feel like an outsider. So you did comedy. That feeling doesn't go away. I don't so know. has that feeling gone away for you? Or do you have that feeling but you kind of mastered no, it logically? I still have it. I just don't... I don't talk about it, I guess. I just don't like... I try not to like intellectualize it. It's just a feeling. It's not to do with where I am in comedy. Really, that's really mentally healthy. I think to recognize. Oh, say, that's just a feeling. That's just like the wind. When that's I say just... try, though, I try. Yeah. I still sometimes will maybe buy into it in my head. But like, whenever you know when you meet a comedian, they're really bitter and they're really fucking angry. And it's like, look, man, everyone has this shit happening in their head. Mm-hmm. We're all thinking this, but the key is just not to say it to a bunch of acquaintances because it's fucking uncomfortable. <laughs> Is it as easy as that? I'm thinking if you're a bitter comic listening to this, what can we what can what could a bitter comic listening to this usefully take away? Shut up about it? I mean that would make things better. There for is everyone. such a trend in comedy right now. I feel like I said the thing about private education, which I didn't say everything I think about private education, so it might have came across as like, why are you complaining about private education? I completely understand why they're complaining. But I on the other side of that, you'll meet a lot of like fifty year old men now in comedy who like hate that people are getting successful who don't look exactly like them. And maybe they don't say it publicly, but they hate it. They hate it. And it's like, you had 20 years of chances and no one, it didn't work out for you. It's a young person's game. Comedy's for young people. Let them have their fun. You had all the chances. They're like, you mean like a 55-year-old man who's like, well, I, I, I didn't get live at the Apollo. The producer wouldn't even watch me. And it's like, yeah, man. That's how it goes. And not to say there shouldn't be 55-year-olds on Live at the Apollo. Sure, let everybody, you know, ageism is an issue also. But you've had a lot of chances. Stop hating the young. So, I, I, yeah. I hope everybody makes all the money. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm, interest, I'm interested in that because, um, again, that just seems like a really positive, happy way to look at it like to not let yourself succumb to those kind of things like you you're a really good comic you've been really good for two decades and like we know what's at stake in this industry because the sky's the limit yeah right? and i'm thrilled that you are happy what you've got i i try to be happy with what i've got i can't honestly hand on heart say i never go oh it'd be oh maybe have i have i fucked up you know those kind of feelings and a lot of the time i'm very happy and lucky in that i get to go oh this is good isn't this a good thing and really experience it and i just think if you are so like um yeah i don't know what i don't know what the question is on the end of it but uh i i think um like you you could i could make a good argument that you should be more significantly more well known than you are I, I could make that argument too, 
but I, it would be pretty boring. <laughs> it's a boring way to be. I don't that I don't have those feelings inside of me. Yeah, of course I wish I got all the cake, but I just got one slice. Whatever, you know, everyone wants everything. I don't know. It's, 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 why should I be? Why should anyone be more? It just, it's such a, it's such a miserable point of view to have yeah. that I, I really try not to entertain it. Have you had therapy? Oh, have I had therapy? Yeah, I've had, I've had, I've had more therapists than girlfriends. Yeah. Tons. <laughs> Tons. Yeah, yeah, many, many therapists, yeah. Because, and do you think it's worked? Because, um, like, saying I've had lots of therapists, I've, I've found myself saying, I've done therapy for ages. That's like saying, I've given up smoking loads. Oh, like, yeah, 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 that's a good point. No, well, I did talk therapy, which didn't really work for me, because talk therapy is just talking about how you feel. A lot of talking about how you feel. Whereas my underlying problem was I didn't know how to regulate my emotions, which is I just needed behavioral therapy to teach me skills to change how I feel. Okay. I didn't actually, how I felt was what didn't matter. So talk there, I'd go into talk therapy and be like, I feel this way. And they just sit there and go, that sounds hard. Like, yeah, it is really hard. And then, uh, you know, 10 years later, I got a good therapist who was just like, oh yeah, if you feel sad and you don't want to be sad anymore, do this, this, and this. And then I was like, oh, thank you. Get amazing. Can but you- other... Th- psychotherapy is just like literally the answer's inside of you and it's like maybe it's not yeah maybe i'm just a bit feral and you need to teach me and that's i yeah i finally just are there any of those kind of uh when you say do this this and this could you share any kind of example oh yeah i mean i did dialectical behavioral therapy so anyone listening that is borderline personality disorder please do dialectical behavioral therapy although it's very hard to get on the nhs and also expensive i just spend my life savings to get it but um yeah, I mean, you know, a cold shower is great. Um, just, Life savings, done. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to like, it's hard because it's very unique to each situation. But I just kind of like very oftentimes try to check the facts of a situation. Mm-hmm. Like it's what you're just talking about. Like, are you ha- unhappy that more people don't know who you are? And it's like, well, if you're sad, just uh, get moving. I would say do something that. Whatever you're sad about is probably... Um, I'm just interested because it like I feel like you're probably quite a good advert for therapy, for the therapy that you've had that you feel made a change because it sounds like you've had a pretty fucking shit time as a teenager. Yeah. And, uh, and you seem pretty on top of things. Yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so, okay. so like, is that, like to, what, to what extent is, oh, comedy saved my life. Or to what extent is therapy saved my life or saved my life? Oh, happiness. therapy for sure. Comedy just made it worse. Did it? Yeah. All oh, these people. Oh my God. These people who are like, oh, I don't need a therapist. I have, a, I have comedy. And it's like, buddy, I've had a coffee with you. Please also get therapy. Like, <laughs> come on. Jesus, you're insufferable. You just talk about your career all the time. It's fucking boring. I mean, that's what this podcast is. It's talking about your career. But I mean, outside of this, of you don't want to be that guy. Um, you're talking about labels. I saw you tweeted something about ADHD. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't, I'm not going to give myself another label, but my mind is getting worse and worse for focusing. And I really find yeah. it difficult to even remember what I'm saying. Yes. Do you, you, in your set, you talk about how like everyone says they've got ADHD, but actually you're just addicted to your phone. I have that. I mean, that really made me laugh because my, I wonder which it is. Like I've got material about the fact I'm, I may not bother getting a diet. I mean, I don't know if I will now, but the point of the material is, I'm not going to bother getting a diagnosis for ADHD. That's the kind of, that's the a comic angle I'm taking on it. I would say don't get the diagnosis because then you'll just have that label. Like you can do the few things, 
I thought that's it. Just skip straight to the skip straight to the solution strategies. Yeah, exactly. But then I and the reason I bring it up is that the other night I did a gig where I did a Friday and a Saturday, and on the Saturday the person running the gig said, "Oh yeah, you know you were saying they're a bit quiet at the end." It's like I, I was doubling, so I sort of turned up and headlined, and they said, "You know you're saying they're a bit quiet at the end." Well, apparently you were the third comic to talk about ADHD, <laughs> and I was like, "Oh shit, this is the new, this is the new turning up backstage in the comedy store dressing room and going." Oh, has anyone done the death of Diana yet? Oh, my God. <laughs> and, and that made me go, oh, I'd better, I better dump oh, all of that stuff. Oh, that's got to... Yeah. Because we're all kind of in, in our internal, in, mm. uh, internal world and the coincidence, the coincidence of the, uh, the pandemic and the fact that a lot of us haven't seen each other, haven't seen much stand-up, missed two Edinburghs, don't know what's going on, don't know what everyone's oh. talking about. At the same time, I've been on this sort of deeply personal journey of going, oh, my goodness, like that. Yeah, have you, buddy? Everyone has. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. My feelings matter. Yeah. Do they? But the th- look, the thing about naming, like, uh, like, and I have a chunk about mental illness where I name the thing, but it's our perspectives are what's funny. And once you name it, it does get a little less funny sometimes. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a good point. Just who you are and the way you are is funny. But then they're like, I have ADHD. And then they're like, do you? Yeah, A, do you? B, that's but alienating, might, alienating you, from anyone that, that doesn't. And it's like, that's, you're right, that's become a different kind of a thing. I read it? a study the other day and it uh, said, uh, tw- <laughs> said 20% of the population is neurodiverse. And I'm like, 20? Well, at that point, it's just the human experience. Yes, If it's sure. 20%. That's, well, this is it. But well, if, I don't know if that's a good stat, but it was insane. Yes. I think I think in the future, probably we will realize that there are just different shapes of brains. Yeah. And... Uh, and at the time, we at the time we right now think that there's pretty much one shape of brain, and then anything that's different is sort of its own special club. And in the future, we might well go, oh yeah, there's loads of different brains. And uh, people with a particularly shaped brain often became stand-up comedians because they prize novelty over mm. anything else, and you know, over their social life. And part of why we all make the, I would be very amused to discover years from now that part of why a lot of comedians became comedians is simply because we struggle with executive function and need to be constantly stimulated. Yeah, and of that's what gigs are. Yes. And that's more important than a nice, comfy home life. And yes. so we all made that decision. Like, I'm very good in a crisis. I'm very good. If everyone else is struggling, I'm great. I'm you not find good that. when I'm, it's I'm calm. I'm good in a crisis. I'm not good when it's really calm. Totally. Um, like, I just thrive when everyone else is struggling. Like, that. that's when I'm comfortable. But, like... Then when everyone's calm, then I'm uncomfortable with that calm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, if I was in a situation most of the time where people were struggling, I might feel more calm than them. So I think it, it's all kind of just environment plays a big part of it, you know? For the benefit of the listener, we just did a retake of a bit. And um, Bobby was all over the place trying to retake a thing. That was that's interesting. Can we talk about that? Is that okay? Yeah. Without talking about what the thing was, like, it, like you were very, you were a very natural kind of flowing thing. And then when we tried to retake a sort of simple sentence, you kind of it was a bit of a struggle. If it doesn't feel, I, I find it difficult. I'm not good at like the presenting, like presenting. You know, like yeah, okay. I, I've gotten good at it, but the, the idea that like you're not trying to be funny, you're just trying to say an idea. But you're if if. If you're not trying to be funny, I find that difficult. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's Which what... is that's what the you know it's really. I I enjoy this conversation, 
But part of me is thinking, like, you're being fucking boring. And I know that that's why people are, that's great that this is the whole point is, like, talk about comedy. But, like, I, there's a part of me that's just, like, why, why, who the fuck cares what you have to think, you know? Yeah, 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 sure. What's the best piece of advice you were ever given as a comic? Um, the best piece of advice I was ever given in a comic is probably just have a good time up there. Because I used to be quite angry on stage and I'd just walk around kind of yelling my jokes to the audience and be actually angry. And then someone said, you know, if you smile, they'll laugh harder. And then once I realized that if I actually have a good time while I'm trying to get them to have a good time, it's 10 times easier. And what's the worst piece of advice you were given? Or has anyone ever told you, like, a rule about comedy that you've thought, fuck no? I genuinely have no idea. Well, you're talking about memory. Like, I don't, I yeah. don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, genuinely have, I genuinely have no idea. When you ask me questions like that, my mind is just like, I... <laughs> It's I, I, my connection to my past. I find it very difficult to even like. I, I have no memory. I don't know. I just don't know. My memory is gone. I find, I find my memory is gone. I don't know the answer to your. I don't know anything anyone's ever said to me before. I don't remember any of my birthdays. Yeah. If someone says to me, "How was your thirty third birthday?" I have no idea. I don't remember any specific Christmases. I don't remember, like. I just don't know. I struggle with memory also. And I wonder sometimes when I'm writing material, I think, oh, shit, I wish I had a memory. Do you know what I mean? Because people are like, you know, you'll get given a you know, briefing for something and they're like, oh, think of, have you got anything on this? And you go, I don't think I've, I don't know. You know, exactly that. Like, uh, tell us a funny thing about a Christmas once. And you go, I can't remember any of them. Yeah. Like, do you find that is the way that you work arrested or held up by that memory thing? Or yes. It, yes. Yes. Um, I really wish I was able to think to remember the past more with a more detailed analysis. Yeah, given that comedy is often a, a lot to do with detail. Yes, so I am limited in the sense that like, I can't remember something that happened 10 years ago and probably write a great bit about it. Yeah. Because I don't know. And I'm amazed whenever people talk about their childhood in this intrinsic specific detail. I'm like that. I wish I had that, but I don't. Are you happy? In this moment, I'm relatively happy. I'm generally happy with how my life is going and the choices I made lately. Yeah, but am I happy all the time? I don't think anyone's supposed to be, you know? This idea that we're supposed to be happy, it's like, no, you're just supposed to stay alive. <laughs> like, nobody, you know, you're not like, oh, is my dog happy? Like, we're just animals. I don't think we're supposed to have one constant emotional state, you know? Thanks, Bobby. Thank you. So that was Bobby. A joy. Catch Bobby and Red's podcast, The Year Is. Uh, you can find out all about that at Linktree. So that's uh, linktree.ee slash the year is pod. That's got all the links. Or just find The Year Is on anywhere you get your podcast. I tried to get the site uh, wherever you get your podcast.com to use it as a forwarding site to this podcast. I tried like for four days ago. I thought it'd be really funny. I had a guy called Preet who has, I think, a business and finance podcast uh, in the, in, I don't know if he's in the States. I don't know where he is. 
Uh, he beat me to it, but I was I didn't mind because then I didn't have to go through the faff of buying the domain and everything else, and I could pat myself on the back for having had what was demonstrably a good idea because someone else bothered. I suspect I'd let cashforgoldsmith.com lapse, but maybe you could try cashforgoldsmith.com, um, which I think should direct you to the Insiders Club website, which otherwise you can find at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. What a lot of websites. Follow Bobby uh, at Bobby Mayer on Twitter and at Bobby Mayer Comedian on Instagram. And um, I will post Amble at you in just a second, but do get the chance to see Bobby live if you can. The Cockroach Tour uh, is in Southend, Cardiff and Norwich and concludes in London in July. All of your tickets at bobbymare.net. Thanks, Bobby. Thanks to everyone for listening. And uh, I will talk to you in a post Amble should you choose to hang around now. more or less depressing if the sound quality that's recorded on my phone in front of a a towel draped over a a hotel television if this sound quality is better than my official podcast studio setup that would be kind of annoying but also convenient um what was i going to tell you about so i'll tell you about i'll tell you about three things ah this is me testing i'm road testing the bullet points system thanks to everyone that got in touch and said don't do bullet points for the post amble we enjoy listening to you disappear up your own mind um but uh so i think i wrote down three things here we go so the first one is this <laughs> yeah seamless bullet point usage there just to go back on um on the Instagram thing. Yeah, so um, A Lovely Time, which is a gig in uh, Manchester, the fantastic uh, Amy Gledhill's gig. And John, uh, whose surname I do not know and does socials for them, posted uh, a reel of mine, posted a clip of mine as a reel on their website. And um, on as a reel on their website, listen to me. Oh, God. Uh, he put it on the internet. Yes, I didn't know how he did it, but he did. I think he posted it to the internet. I don't know if he needed a stamp. Um and it went insanely mega millions and millions viral. And of course, I then I think I talked to you about this last week and how long it took me to actually stop a second and go, oh, that's nice. Loads of people like my joke. Well, there's no time for that because now I'm chopping up every fucking thing I've got and putting it out there in an attempt to catch the wave. Um, and I've even had, and this is, hey, this is when you know you've <laughs> made it in about eight sets of inverted commas, um, is uh, someone's someone's Instagram uh account which all it does is clip uh, it, it aggregates other comedians clips and then kind of uses them to doesn't even repackage them just puts them just kind of redoes them all rebroadcast them all um in order to swell its own followers it's pinched one of mine hey no hard feelings <laughs> really uh, i don't know how to feel about it i'm considering getting in touch you know that thing that you should oh never mind i've i've had quite a good idea and uh i it might be a good idea it might be um really stupid but uh it follows quite a fun uh startupy business principle so i might experiment with that but i won't tell you anymore that started off being a note to nathan and actually it's fine to leave this bit in um but uh yes there we are uh, mystery and intrigue here as i begin addressing nathan and go no no leave it in i just won't say what i was going to say now here's some fun things i did hello victoria uh dr vj barker who is a listener of the show and also a i don't know what you do, Victoria. Um, you, she's a comic as well, and she also does um, ecosystems. She does ecosystems. That's what she does. And um, I was very happy to run into her at the Creativity Researchers, uh, the UK 
creativity researchers conference that I attended yesterday because that's the sort of shit I get up to these days. Um, and oh my God, what a fun thing, right? I was invited there to speak. I was being interviewed. I was going to be interviewed by a, a professor pal of mine, um, but someone else uh, stepped in very kindly. Um, uh, interviewed about the creative process and this is great because you know I do these resilience sessions for, for businesses and charities and you know organisations is the word um, I also do uh, sessions in authenticity and I do sessions in creativity and problem solving all from the perspective of uh, comedy and comedians C-O-M-E-E-E-E-E-J-A-N-S and um, uh, I d so the thing is, people want the resilient stuff because obviously life is tough and that's the most kind of marketable thing. So I don't get to talk about the creativity end as much as I like. And it was really fun. I managed to address a room of like 100 doctors of one sort or another. Um, and having watched a load of their incredible presentations, here, here's how all conferences should work. Two people would get up and do 15 minute presentations with a couple of questions at the end. So a 15, then a 15. Then three or four people would get up and do a lightning round where they would present their findings about something in five minutes each. Oh my God, it was so good for my brain. I paid attention all day. I was never bored. Um, and because you know me, like, who wants to watch an hour of stand-up? Christ. Apart from mine, which is excellent, and you should come and see it, wouldn't the Edinburgh Festival be better if they were all 40-minute sets? Everyone starts on the hour, and you've got 20 minutes to hustle to the next gig. Imagine it. If we can dream it, we can do it. I was going to do, you call it, what, slapsticks, been take a slapdash, or get on with it festival, or something like that. Everyone, just get the biggest names in comedy, all doing sevens. Just sevens all day long. God, I'd be so absolutely perfect. Anyway, um... Uh, I uh, went to this conference and saw all of these lightning fast things. And it's brilliant because I, I mean, I addressed them by saying, so I think I'm the closest thing that the UK comedy circuit has to one of you in that I'm kind of a creativity researcher, except that I don't understand the graphs or statistics or I mean, I have only anecdotes and no data at all. So I'm not really like you at all. But um, nonetheless, the ways in which they were talking, someone presented about constraints and the effect constraints had on creativity. Someone else, I saw a poster presentation about brainstorming and about how they have scientifically proved that brainstorming only makes you more creative if you reduce the number of people involved in phases. Phase brainstorming knock some jokes around with six people then applying it all to this all of this stuff can be applied to comedy i love it knock some ideas around with six people then split into pairs and then individuals work on the ideas that they've had blah, 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 down the line and that is scientifically proven to be the most if creatively efficient and effective wow someone else did a thing about constraints which you know like deadlines that's a constraint working to a deadline we all know how fantastic that is um and you know the constraints that you put on comedy uh, that you might say, oh, you can't joke about this or you have to joke about this or what have you. And as a creative exercise, they can be really, really useful. Suddenly I'm applying all this stuff. It was great. Or uh, applying it mentally, I should say. I haven't done any of the actual work yet. Um, talking of uh, doing live work and shows and what have you, um, I've been really enjoying doing this kind of little mini don't call it a tour of work in progress gigs. The Temperance in Leamington Spa, what a venue, what a joy. Uh, that was really fun. Um, and uh, the Bristol Comedy Festival was sensational as well. Now, I am always bad and always trying to improve at sort of advertising stuff in advance, kind of promoing stuff in advance. Um, so it, it does not behoove me at all to sit here and go, hey, these are the great ones that you missed. But do look out for next year's Bristol Comedy Festival. It was such a joy. And if you're in the southwest at all, or even, I mean, you know, just come from London. It's, it is expensive, but not that far. Get in a car together and just come and see. I mean, there were my friends went to see, they went to see Sarah Key with Pierre Novelli and then 
who else? I saw Julia Masley. She was amazing. So just it's like really interesting, good quality, uh, breakthrough profile-ish kind of acts. And just bang, 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 bang. And really fun and a really nice vibe. So that was great. Um, coming up, Wells Comedy Festival. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to tell you all the dates and all the faff, but basically I'm at Wells Comedy Festival. I'm at the Hop In in Swindon. That's coming up. So if you recognize any of these names or places, then you can go to some sort of central point where my live dates are that doesn't exist i should build that today i will what i will do at the absolute minimum is screen grab this and tweet it at comcom pod so you can find it there wells uh the hop in in swindon the black cherry in bournemouth uh, that's a double with andrew white who's brilliant um the chapel in wiltshire that's got to be it's got to be swindon again is it uh, anyway, so uh, the Chapel Nightclub in Wiltshire. It's just its own city um, with Nabil Abdul-Rashid. Um, and then I think we're doing stuff in uh, Bath together as well at the Rondo. Fording Bridge, me neither. Uh, Smoke and Mirrors in Bristol. Cardiff at 1877, which is a great, uh, really nice little club. Um, the Oxford Comedy Festival and then the Tringe Festival in Tring. So if you're near any of those... Get in touch and I'll tell you personally where it's at. And if you're on the mailing list, you can join the mailing list at stuartgoldsmith.com or comedianscomedian.com and you'll get this information. But if you're a casual listener, you filthy casual, then um, go to at comcompod and I will at the very least uh, screen grab this in what they're already calling the most pathetic attempt to market tickets to interested people ever. God, I tell you who does it well. Brennan Reese. Everyone go and look at Brennan Reese's Instagram. He's really good at going uh, at like, uh, you know, monthly, well-designed, pretty uh, kind of interesting, uh, eye-catching graphics that show you where he's going to be. So let's all copy Brennan Reese, shall we? Great. Um, That'll do for now. I'm uh, fortunately the Hoover in the the place has stopped. I was at a very uh, bijou and relatively sober stag do last night. And uh, I am now recovering from it and getting ship shape. And it's 11am and I still haven't had breakfast. So this must end. Goodbye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.